If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? Hey everyone, good to be with you today. Spring is on the horizon and with that comes a desire to get outside and be active and part of that is also getting on track with our nutrition and who better to help us out than Angie Niska with Rise Nutrition. You can get your free wellness profile by going to the show notes and you'll see a direct link. Of course, you can find Angie and Rise Nutrition at Rise Menominee and that's Rise with a Z. Today on the show, author of the book Just Faith, his writings on religion and politics regularly appear on all sorts of national media outlets, including CNN and the Washington Post. Ladies and gentlemen, Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons. I am the son of two labor union organizers in Houston, Texas is where I grew up. And so I grew up very involved in uh, activism and progressive politics and with my parents on the picket line fighting for workers' rights. And then I also grew up in the church, in a very liberal Methodist church. And the kind of social justice message that I heard from my parents, like in their work and on the picket line, was the same message I heard proclaimed from the pulpit. And it was a kind of nice little bubble to be in growing up of this, you know, liberal church, which has its flaws, like any church has. It wasn't a church without flaws. But my pastor had been Grand Marshal of the LGBTQ Pride Parade in Houston. And so that made coming out for me as a gay man pretty easy. Not, you know, entirely easy, but much easier than most people. And then I just discovered after I <laughs> grew up and learned more that that's not the norm with American Christianity. My experience was far outside the norm and I felt called to work at the, this intersection of faith and progressive politics and social justice. So I uh, have been making my way into this world in terms of going to seminary and studying Christian social ethics, and then working in D.C. at this kind of intersection of faith and public policy. And now I live in Louisville, Kentucky. My day job at the Center for American Progress, which is a liberal think tank based in D.C. And then I just put out my first book, which is called Just Faith, Reclaiming Progressive Christianity, which is basically my manifesto of everything I've been feeling since a child. 
I love that. You come from a very different space. I don't think I've ever met someone that came from a space where it was healthy and then you saw maybe the unhealth outside of your own story and then decided to do something about it. It's usually quite the opposite. Usually somebody has a tragic story from inside faith circles and their desire to do something about it actually comes out of that trauma or that hurt. But yours is quite different. And you mentioned it as a calling as well. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what it was that made you feel like you were going to make a livelihood and a passion out of this. Yeah, and your point about uh, my own writing being kind of outside the norm is something I've heard as I've just been talking about this book. I teach Bible study every Sunday at my church here in Louisville, Highland Baptist Church, which is a interesting church that has a lot of people who were raised evangelical fundamentalists, Southern Baptists, and uh, are healing and kind of doing the deconstruction and kind of coming to terms with the the dissonance that they felt in, you know, what their churches preached and uh, the message of Jesus. And so (laughs) one of the people in my Bible study class I made them read chapters as I was writing the book as like the curriculum as a like having a dialogue. And I don't think anyone else I've read that writes about progressive Christianity came from like a good upbringing in terms of like the church. It's so many people that have left. And so, yeah, I, I think sometimes when you're raised in a way that is congruent with your values, you don't necessarily feel the need to go out and like talk about it all the time most progressive Christians I know don't feel the like zeal to proselytize in terms of saving souls from eternal damnation, but we do feel the need for collective salvation, which is the need for our society to be more just and equitable. And that's the calling I felt. Uh, One of my earliest memories was leafleting outside churches. My dad was uh, helping lead the minimum wage campaign in 1996 in Houston, where you know, now there's this big fight for $15 minimum wage, which has a lot of faith groups that support it. But back then it was six fifty, and the black church in Houston was really a leader in this. And I was like, wow, the black church is the heart of progressive politics. If you spend any time in progressive politics, it's not often described as the black church, it's described as just like black voters, but it's really the black church. Um, of course, those are not, those are overlapping groups and not one and the same, but the The black church is both the beating heart of the progressive movement in this country and American Christianity in terms of its prophetic imagination. And so I always just love the activism for a better world. The idea that we don't just have to sit thoughts and prayers, you know, conservative Christians will say thoughts and prayers after a mass shooting. And I mean, that should just strike everybody as absurd. The idea that we're just going to sit by and let people die in mass shootings. No, it's, it's yes, thoughts, prayers, and action. And that third piece, action, just always appealed to me. It's been just on my heart. It's what drives me. And I feel like I'm, you know, joining with generations of people who have gone before compelled by their faith. Yes, absolutely. Just before, I want to talk a lot more about a lot of what you just said. But before we go there, I like to help out a little bit people who are listening because this word progressive Christianity for a lot of people coming out of evangelical circles is almost feels like this brand new thing. And everybody speaks of it a little bit differently, but there's definitely some connecting points, I would say. So when you use the word progressive Christianity, what are some of the things that help define it as such? So I'm thinking it 
as a term of Christian social ethics. Some people use it as like a theological concept. And my work is in the activist social ethics realm. And so when I use it, I'm talking about, and I have a very broad conception of, well, Christian and progressive, but, uh, you know, I try not to police who is a Christian, who's not, and go around saying these people are fake Christians and all of that. No. Uh, So if you're a self-professed Christian, that satisfies the Christian part. And then progressive, I think, can mean a whole lot of things. And progressives like calling other progressives not that progressive, right? Like, say you're for a $15 minimum wage, since we were just talking about that. In, in many American cities, $15 is not even a living wage. So that's not progressive. You know, it should be much higher. And that's just one example. There's like, on war, sometimes there's people that want a very strict pacifism would be the progressive stance. But then other people say there's maybe some, in the case of genocide, for instance, the U.S. should intervene. And, you know, I, so I say if you self-identify as progressive, or someone who cares about social justice, some people prefer the term social justice. You think we can, as a society, come together and build a more just and equitable world, then I think you fit in the progressive movement. And if you're identified as a Christian, you're a progressive Christian. Perfect. That's a, that's about the easiest definition I've ever heard. <laughs> I love it, though. If you just believe you are, then you can be that. I, I think that's perfect. Now, a lot of people get a little squeamish when we mix public policy with faith or with religion. My perspective is that Jesus was in so many ways consistently talking about both, but the way that he did it was very creative and interesting for sure. How do you work those two in your head and in your work of the faith piece and the public policy piece, the faith piece and the political piece even? Yeah, I've heard this a lot as I go in my work, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, Just Faith. And I try to walk through all the different reasons people have for not bringing up their faith when we talk about activism and politics. And we should be careful. When I talk about politics and activism, I'm not talking about partisanship or saying, you know, the Democratic Party this. If I lived in another country, my values would be the same. My uh, Christian commitment would be the same. My party would be different, right? Because you'd be in a totally different political system. And so it's not about party. It's about thinking these Christian values mean something, that Jesus' own ministry, when he's in Luke 4, you know, announcing his ministry, he's talking about freeing the oppressed, setting the captives free, the, the year of the Lord's favor. And that has huge implications for how we organize ourselves as humanity. And so... I think it was a huge part of Jesus's own ministry, and it was a huge part of the early Jesus movement, like in Acts and everybody holding things in common. You can learn so much about economics, you know, just reading the book of Acts. And so there is so much that should compel us in a way that is also respectful of people who are different. Because sometimes you hear Christians say, like, the Bible says this, so we should criminalize abortion. Or the Bible says this, so we should do X, Y, and Z. And that to me is theocracy, and it's uh, an infringement on our secular democracy and the separation of church and state. So we have to be vocally about what inspires us, but then also make room for people in society and not try to oppress non-Christians by saying, because Christianity is the largest faith group in this country, the U.S. government should be run as a Christian government. And that's a tough line to walk, but I think, you know, just recently we have Reverend Warnock, now Senator Reverend Warnock, 
who I think does this really well. And I challenge anybody who says we should not involve faith in politics to listen to Reverend Warnock. He's clearly inspired by his faith. You know, he inherited the pulpit that um, Dr. King once held and Dr. King's father, yet he's not saying there's no place for other people that are not Christian. In fact, the other senator he now serves with, John Ossoff, is Jewish. So it's a huge roadblock for people doing this work in the public square. I, I think there's a way to do it respectfully that is still authentic. I couldn't agree more, which is why I'm wondering like, what the hell happened in the last couple of months with people professing to be Christians promoting something to me that felt very anti-Christ-like. Where is this humongous disconnect where people in the name of Jesus are storming the Capitol or are believing that a person like Donald Trump should be in office forever? Somebody said it well, like this year we just are able to see out to the edges. We're able to see all of it. You're a person who is in this world. What do you think is the root of all of that? The, the nature of evil and kind of the odyssey is a little outside my pay grade. But I, what I do know is we shouldn't be surprised by people that don't believe in social justice. And so I, I talked a little bit earlier about my experience being raised by two union organizers. And there have been very few union organizing drives in history, which are all about respecting the dignity of workers and respecting you know that everyone deserves to be treated fairly in a living wage there's never been an organizing for those values that wasn't opposed you know by the the owners of the company who wanted to uh, keep people paid starvation wages you know didn't want to give up child labor laws why didn't they want to give up child labor laws because it's cheap and easy to hire you know a child to do the work the insurrection I think it was surprising in the fact that I couldn't understand how they got past the Capitol Police. That part was surprising. But the fact that they claimed to be Christian wasn't surprising to me at all, because there has always been this strain of people that read the Bible very differently. And, you know, it goes back to the people who uh, were slaveholders and Christians. It goes back to the Crusades. I mean, throughout Christian history, there is a very different tradition of what it means to follow Jesus, which is, you know, very legalistic about using the kind of religious symbols and texts as a way of social control, rather than seeing the arc of liberation in the Bible. So there's a whole range of different views. And in my book, I, I call it the Westboro Baptist Church effect, where we're so upset about the tiny Westboro Baptist Church, right? I mean, it only has a few dozen members, but they go around and picket funerals uh, and enters virulently anti-LGBTQ. And I think there's been more written and just more consternation about the Westboro Baptist Church than any church of any size in this whole country. It's important to confront it. I'm not saying don't. And yet I'm much more interested in celebrating and amplifying and supporting the vision of like a Reverend Warnock. Yeah, I think that's in so many ways the horrible work that they did at that church worked because of the amount of attention that we gave it. And there is a fine line that we have to walk because, yeah, you, you have to speak out the injustice, but you can't give it so much attention that it keeps from the good work that so many other people are doing as well because I think we will get more out of supporting good work than we will of opposing evil 
but both are really important. I will just say what it leads to is I tell people I'm going to church. This is, I, I don't really talk to strangers now because we're in a pandemic, but before the pandemic, you know, I tell people I'm going to church and they look at me like, what? You're super conservative? You know, just the average person that doesn't think a lot about Christianity uh, has come to think that maybe I'm not that conservative as a Westboro Baptist Church, but that it's like this conservative thing. And then if, if they know I'm gay, they're like even more surprised that I'm going to church. And it's like, in, I lived in Houston, then DC, then New York, and now Louisville, great progressive churches, several to choose from. You know, in New York, there were a ton, in DC, a ton. And I think at every major city and most smaller towns in this country, you're going to find, you know, a congregation of Christians committed to social justice. And then I tell the people that are surprised, oh, I'm married to a pastor. <laughs> so they're even more <laughs> like surprised. We can't keep so focused on that. And people leave the church over this, you know, that people leave Christianity altogether because they're totally unaware of other faith expressions. Has you being a gay man, has that come into play much in your faith journey or in your professional work at all? It has. So I was raised in the Methodist Church, and for those unfamiliar with how the Methodist Church works, there are a lot of very liberal congregations of the Methodist Church, like the one I grew up in, the one I was a member of in D.C., Foundry United Methodist Church, and yet the policies, such as allowing same-sex marriages, it's this kind of very far-removed process where people send delegates to this general conference every four years and vote. And it's very divisive and very detached from relational experiences where I think where people's hearts change when you actually meet somebody. After seminary in New York, I then moved to Louisville and I found this amazing Baptist church that had already gone through the process. And in Baptist polity, the local congregation decides. And that really appealed to me. It appealed to me to not be a part of the fight anymore and have people keep voting on my humanity. And it also appealed to me that the vote was at a local church level, because then you're not voting about an abstract issue. You actually know people who are LGBTQ and you actually meet them and hear their faith story. And then you decide as a church, what are we going to do? In terms of work, I would say there is a growing acceptance of LGBTQ rights. Just since I started working, I graduated college in 2011, and I've already seen in the almost 10 years now that there is much more pro-equality views in the kind of Christian social justice space. Like several denominations have you know, changed their views, and um, there's growing acceptance in the non-denominational kind of quasi-evangelical space. So, and there, there are also people outside the church too that I think are, are waiting and would come back into churches who are themselves LGBTQ and then family and friends. I've had people tell me they've left their straight people, cisgender people who have said they've left their church. One family member of mine, you know, even said she couldn't find a church in her whole area to go to. So it's just not going to church. And this is one of the most devout people I've known. And so, I think there are the people that are still in the church, the, these non-affirming churches that are ready for the conversation, ready to engage. And then there's also people that would come back 
that have slowly left. And we see, you know, declines across the board in, in membership in churches in this country. Yeah. And I know some pastors that I've talked to are fearful of bringing up the conversation because they'll get kicked out of their denomination. They have to deal with that or big money people will leave their kind. You know, there's all that crap going on. Let's dig into just faith a little bit more, if you don't mind. You shared a little bit about why you wrote the book. If somebody would pick up this book, by the time they get through it and put it down, what would be your hope of either how they felt confirmed or changed or whatever was in your mind as you were working through it? I hope readers feel less alone. They feel connected that there are millions and millions and millions of progressive Christians who care deeply about the same issues that they do all around this country. And that's something I've found just talking to people from coast to coast and is that everybody feels like they're the outlier in their own denominations, in their own churches, in their families. And yet when you have outliers in so many different places, there's so many of us. When you add up all the outliers, there are so many people. And, and yet this fatigue that I have felt is that when you are told over and over again, you're the outlier, you don't want to engage. And so I hope it's not just a feeling of warmth and comfort that you're not alone but that it's a call to action to reclaim progressive Christianity in the public square. And so many of the people I've met are doing activism. You know, there's so much great activism going on right now in the country, the Black Lives Matter movement, climate justice, immigrant rights. There's so many good social justice movements happening. And yet I feel like sometimes people don't engage as Christians. And so that's the real call to action in the book is to help Every single person, this book is not just for pastors or people that, you know, have some huge public platform. It's for every single person who considers themselves a progressive Christian to do their part. My grandmother, who I dedicated the book to, used to, you know, write a little quote from the Bible and hold it up at protests that we would go to. And that's something people can do. People can reference their own faith in their activism as a way of showing that, you know, there's those few Westboro Baptist church people showing up places, but there's millions and millions and millions of people who care about social justice. And we have to get over all the, you know, what we were talking about earlier, the kind of reluctance to talk about faith. So I think that's the piece that I hope people will leave the book comforted, that they're not alone, and then inspired to be explicit about their faith and their activism. I really appreciate that piece of it because a lot of the people that I've been running into, number one, like your book is the same purpose as this podcast, which is first and foremost to help people feel like they're not alone. I don't want people to feel the way that I felt when I was going through what a lot of people call deconstruction. But then another thing that I noticed is that the farther down that road I got, I started not appreciating who I was becoming because it was just so much about what was wrong or what needed to change. And then as soon as I made that decision to take action again, to move forward, that I can't just keep deconstructing. At some point, you have to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to move forward now. So I really appreciate that element because my hope for this progressive movement that feels like it's really getting very vibrant right now in our history. My hope is that we'll start seeing people like yourselves and others who have these ideas, these thoughts, these callings that are going to create this 
thing that we've never seen before as an expression of faith. And I think it's going to be way better than anything we've seen before. The work being done by people like uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign, work being done, I mean, new kind of exciting public theologians like Nadia Boltz-Weber is doing great work. Sojourners is doing interesting work. Uh, There's a lot of activism that's happening uh, from a Christian perspective that really excites me. And then generationally, I think there will be entirely new conversations, especially around LGBTQ rights, which has been a, a such a focal point for like the Christian right, which is basing their kind of whole project on that and then criminalizing abortion. That if you look at even among self-professed evangelicals, the numbers generationally are really changing. Where I think, you know, in our own lifetimes, you know, it's not going to be a question, you know, we'll accept the full dignity of LGBTQ people, which will change the whole dynamics that the past few decades of Christian social ethics have revolved around. I mean, it's been a turbulent year, right? It's been, a, I would argue, more than just a turbulent year, but... Where in in your field of work, where in just your life in general, where do you see hope for the world moving forward? That is a great question. Uh, It's hard to see hope right now after, you know, 2020 was hard. We've lost so many people uh, to the pandemic. And then just the past month has been so intense with the insurrection and, you know, the uh, President Trump trying to steal the election and real doubts that a whole segment of our country values democracy, you know, above winning. We have to hold on to hope even amidst such tough times we're living in. And in my own life, I see it through, I think the creativity that I've seen with the church during COVID. Every church is now a televangelist. And I think that the circumstances were tough, but all these churches experimenting and doing new things and reaching people in new ways is very exciting because the church is always evolving. It just sometimes external circumstances push people to evolve more. So I think there's hope in that the the church after the pandemic will be uh, very different and more engaged in the world in terms of meeting people where they are. Just so many interesting things, I think, have come because people are forced to kind of do new things. So that's hope. And as a country, I would say I have hope with the new administration. And and I should say I I don't agree with, uh, you know, President Biden and Vice President Harris on every policy issue. And yet I believe they're really listening and have empathy. I think that's the thing I love most about President Biden is his faith is so much about listening to others, about grieving the children he's lost, the family members he's lost. It's about caring for others and listening to them. And that to me is hopeful. I mean, one of the most tragic things about COVID is we haven't really grieved the the dead as a nation. So I I find hope in uh, having a new day for our country. The last four years were so awful and Uh, We published this daily newsletter called The Resistance Praise for almost every day of the Trump administration because there's just so much evil happening all the time that we wanted to root ourselves in scripture. And yet now I feel some beginnings of, uh, there's still a lot of work to do, but some beginnings of hope for a better country and one where we can listen and have empathy for each other. 
special thanks to Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons for being on the show this week. Such a great interview, such great perspective. I really appreciated getting the opportunity to talk with him. A direct link to his book, Just Faith, will be in the show notes. Make sure you get a copy of that as soon as you possibly can. Friends, next week, Jesus Never Ran turns two years old. I'm so excited. We'll do a special episode just to celebrate. Until that time, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. And until next week, keep walking.